Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives. Welcome to the October podcast. As always, Rachel Agbeko is here with me to discuss the highlight papers, the most talked about or likely talked about papers in the October issue. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks, Nick. Quite a range we have this month. Um, Where would you like to kick off? As um, Bob Phillips in uh, Archimedes uh, in this month's edition says, it's obvious. And of course, it may not be, both at the same time. So I think this edition is is an invite to think about knowledge uh, and to think about how sure we are in knowing and I think the papers you've chosen to focus on in the, in this month's Atoms are good examples of knowing, or maybe not knowing. Yeah, that's a nice kick-off point. I hadn't thought of them in that context before. That puts things very nicely in perspective. So let's start then with The Power of Patient Storytelling by Alice May Perkis, who's based at Beyond Arts, a community interest company, which aims to use art to break down taboos about cancer in the UK. I'm glad you chose this uh, paper, Nick, as it very much invites uh, to question the story we tell as clinicians and and researchers. And and that story is usually uh, devoid of patient experience. And thus, not all we need to know is part of our decision-making, and that decision-making is obviously crucial. Alice May Perkis rightly starts uh, with her paper by saying that humans thrive on stories. They're how we make decisions, how we make sense of the world, how we figure out our place in it all. And patient stories are powerful in so many ways, and and she alludes to these in a a very compelling piece. And and I see this as an invite uh, to use both evidence-based medicine, obviously, as well as narrative-based medicine, equally as obvious, just we need reminding. As we go through the papers, this, this story that we, we tell or think we tell, um, the knowing that we have or think we have, I think comes, uh, comes through. And to start with is the, is the paper on Burns um, uh, and it examines part of the Burns story that has not received uh, the intention that I think it warrants. We've been focused on fluids, pain management, dressings, grafting, infections, and rightly so, absolutely. But when we think about the longer term, where, where does that bring us, Nick? Well, I'm so glad you raised that question. This is exactly what I was getting at. This are the, the quantifiable outcomes or interventions um, are familiar to most of us, but the slightly more longer term, perhaps slightly less easy to quantify questions are still as yet completely unanswered. So let's look at this paper in a bit more detail. The impact of childhood burns on academic performance, a matched population-based cohort study led by Rebecca Mitchell and first author Nicole Halim. So what the authors did was compare academic performance and high school completion of young people hospitalised for a burn to young people not hospitalised for any injury, the controls. The study was based in New South Wales, Australia, and retrospectively looked at children admitted in a period between 2001 and 2018 and used health and education databases which were linked for the study. 
So the main learning point from the study was that there's considerable risk associated with burn injury in children not finishing high school. Mm, that struck that struck me too. And given that education is a is a major contributor to long term health outcomes, we should really pay more um, attention to this aspect, um, which is uh, a social determinant of health. Uh, and as paediatrician, we may not necessarily link those those two. I wondered about the bit of children and girls in particular um, who uh, seem to attain a lower literacy. Um, in association with being hospitalised for, uh, for, for burn injuries. It's certainly a concern. It seems robust to confounding or known confounders. So we need to take this pretty seriously. So it's a worry for the girls themselves, clearly, but also potentially for a next generation of children, given that maternal literacy is closely linked to child's health outcomes. So we need to understand what causes this striking reduction in performance. And here is where narrative medicine, as we alluded to before, might be very helpful. So the next two papers address a different story and a different disease. There are three papers in this edition pertaining to Kawasaki. One has risk stratification as a core question, and the two highlighted in the column in Atoms are focused on treatment. But this isn't a story about which drug to choose between, but rather to see whether there's something to add. We'll discuss the paper Infliximab for Intensification of Primary Therapy for Patients with Kawasaki Disease and Coronary Artery Aneurysms at Diagnosis by Dr. Koichi Miyata and colleagues at the University of California, San Diego in the US and the accompanying editorial Thinking Beyond IVIG for Kawasaki Disease by Dr. Anne Sage and co-authors at Bristol Royal Hospital for Children in the UK. So why revisit what seems to be a hoary old chestnut, Rachel? IVIG in Kawasaki. We know all about that, don't we? Um, but we probably don't. Um, uh, and, and we might think especially about children at the more severe end of the Kawasaki disease spectrum. So, so children with coronary artery aneurysms at diagnosis because uh, their risk for severe cardiovascular events are high. And it makes sense to see whether there's something there to add in terms of anti-inflammatory interventions. As you alluded to, we know that two grams per kilo of IVIJ standard a procedure and it works but it doesn't always work it doesn't always have the desired outcome uh, and it's becoming costly uh, and more difficult to obtain reasons to revisit i think um, we know that immune modulation works in kawasaki but we don't don't quite know the exact mechanisms of the disease and there is some evidence to support um, additional interventions such as steroids, anti-TNF, alpha drugs, um, infliximab or etanoserp, and anti-IL-1 beta um, and akinra. We've been reminded that, number one, there are, if not alternatives, but adjunctive options. We've got some now pretty strong evidence that um, immune modulating, in addition to IVIG, which, as you say, has become harder to come by. It's difficult to come by in low and middle income countries and costs a lot, that that might not 
always be the solution or readily available. So it's really good news that there's um, some alternatives or adjunctive treatments that have potential. It seems that uh, on the basis of the, the findings from this particular paper that, that the higher dose of 10 milligrams rather than the standard 5 has the additional value for coronary artery aneurysm regression. So there seems to be a threshold here. The study was single centre but did manage to include just short of 170 patients which is no mean feat. So we should heed these results as well as pay attention to the acceptability of infliximab as an adjunct in the context of general paediatricians rather than paediatric subspecialists looking after the majority of children with Kawasaki as the authors of the editorial rightly point out. Mm. Indeed, I was wondering, you know, what 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 are the stories that led to non-adherence to protocol in some some instances, and so how how do these stories inform our knowledge on applying the interventions in the real world? Uh, I think I think we also should try to know that, um, uh, as you said, ten milligrams and five milligrams um, is an indicator, but then how do the children actually get it? Mm. Now, last to mention today, two papers uh, relating to the development of infants born during the COVID-19 pandemic. Development and behavioural outcomes at two years in babies born during the COVID-19 pandemic, communication concerns in the pandemic birth cohort, and the paper, infants born during COVID-19 pandemic have less interest in masked faces than unmasked faces. Both are authored by Dr Susan Byrne and colleagues at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland on behalf of the Coral Study Group. The COVID pandemic may be over, but the sequelae are not. What's the story here, Nick? I think it's fair to say that there's more than one story here. The study, no pun intended, unmasks several other questions. The main one is that it requires us to remain curious and vigilant and not to leave it with the initial illness. And the authors worryingly identified a deficit in communication development in infants born during the pandemic compared to a historic control group. Rather than drawing conclusions at early follow-up, we clearly need more information about longer-term issues. And as a result of that, be able to formulate uh, potential interventions such that these children are able to fully participate and fulfil their potential. It's been great talking as always, Rachel. Thanks everyone for listening. Enjoy the full issue. Of course, you can get hold of the Atoms podcast as well as all the others on the usual platforms. On the website, adc.bmj.com, on Apple, on Spotify. Thanks for listening. It's goodbye from me. And from me. See you next time.